Well, I want to add my welcome to Matt's welcome earlier, especially to those of you who are visiting with our church for the first time today. We know being here, especially in this neighborhood, this tends to be the time of year where a lot of people are new to the area, getting settled in, looking for churches and friends. And if that's you this morning, especially you're glad that you're here. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, here because you're considering what it looks like to follow Jesus, we want to welcome you. And, and let you know that everything we do here on a Sunday morning, especially the time that we're going to celebrate here now in the next 30, 40 minutes or so, flows out of our belief that God has spoken to us in the Bible. That the same God that made each one of us and made everything that is has chosen to speak so that we could understand him. So that we could, could follow along with, with who he is and what he's like and what he's done. And so each time that we come together on a Sunday morning, we build our time together around trying to understand what his, what his word says. So with that, I want to invite you to take a copy of the Bible, either your own copy or a copy we've provided at the center of each aisle, and flip over to a section of the Bible known as Lamentations. If you need help finding it, there's a table of contents at the beginning of your Bible. You find the, the page references there. Uh, Each week, we try to understand what part of the Bible means for us, what it meant in its time and its place, and what it means for us today. And like Matt said earlier, today, we are finishing up a series that's taken us all through the summer on a type of material that you'll find in the Bible known as lament. Next week, we're going to start a series on 1 Peter. It's a letter that's all about hope. All summer, we've been talking about sorrow and grief, what it is to to look for God in times when he doesn't seem to be near you. Today we're going to be rounding out that series with the end of a book called Lamentations that's a collection of ancient poems, five ancient poems, written in response to the tragedy of Israel's history. In 587 B.C., what was left of Israel was conquered by the Babylonian Empire. Its city, holy city, completely destroyed. Its temple left in rubble and ruin. And its people scattered throughout that part of the world. These poems respond to that terrible event and help us understand what it felt like. We've been using these poems not just for window into Israel's history, but, but also to try to, to understand and learn from them how we should be honest in expressing the, the pain and the sorrow in our lives. Because we know loss too. We may not have lost exactly what Israel has, but every one of us has and will lose. So we want to learn from their experience how to process it when it happens to us. One of the reasons we did this series on lament, and a couple of reasons that we mentioned at the very beginning of the series, we we thought it was important to study this kind of material in the Bible, partly because you're suffering now or you will be. That's That's just a universal truth. Either you are now or you will be at some point, and you need to know what resources God has given you in his word to help you persevere in those times of suffering. The other reason we we decided to spend time on lament is that your friends are suffering and they need you to to point them towards towards resources to, to, to cope with what they're dealing with. And dealing with the suffering of your friends can be very disorienting for you, not just for them. It's hard to know what to say. And lament in the Bible gives us tools that we can use right away, language that we can put to their experience and point them to so that it's not about us and, and what we know as experts on their pain, but about what God has given them right here on the surface of the text. So we've been trying to, trying to learn this summer what the steps of lament are and how to walk them together. It's fitting that we're going to end this series this morning with the fifth poem in Lamentations because that, that final poem, Lamentations chapter 5, is actually itself a well-rounded prayer of lament. It has all the elements, all the steps in lament that we set out at the very beginning of our series 
the four steps that we hoped you would learn to take for yourself based on the way that the Bible treats this kind of material are all found in this last poem. So what I want to do this morning is just walk through the poem together using the four steps that we introduced at the very beginning of the series to kind of recap where we've been, show you in action how this prayer will look and how it could look in your life and encouraging you guys to take it up for yourselves. Um, Other poems in this collection have, have focused on trying to put down in words what Israel was going through, what it actually feels like to lose everything, to try to get it out of your head and on the paper, to try to, to break through the kind of fog that often settles in when you're in deep suffering. One of the ways that the, the author, the poet, has been trying to, to work that out is by using an acrostic where he's, he, he took, for, for the structure of his poems, he would take the Hebrew alphabet and each poem line would start with a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The next line would start with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet and so on till the end of the alphabet. And, and, and most that I've read have said that that's him trying to bring order to chaos in his life, to at least bring order to his words about the chaos that he's living through. Well, when you reach chapter five, where we are this morning, he drops the acrostic altogether. In fact, he, it's almost as if he's dropping himself into a heap at God's feet. His attempt to try to bring order to what he's, what he's been through is, is done now. Now he's, he's got nothing else to say and nowhere else to turn. This poem moves on from what we've talked about as like a memorial where, he, where every aspect of the pain that they've been through gets cataloged into a prayer where all he's got is a cry for help. It's the shortest of the poems, partly because of that. It's almost like he's just stumbling to the finish and collapses. So what I want to do is, is walk you through the verses of this prayer and to try to point you to the four steps, step by step, that lament takes towards God in suffering. Now, these four steps, some version of them I found in lots of different writers. The framing, the words I'm using for these four steps, I borrowed from a pastor and author named Mark Rogup. Um, It's four steps. Simply turn to God, complain to God about what's going on, ask boldly of God to do something about it, and then choose to trust in God. Those four steps are listed for you on your worship guide. You can follow through, uh, follow those steps through what's coming next, but I want to begin by reading the whole prayer, and then I'm just going to try to bring to the surface of this prayer these four steps and how you can use them for yourself. I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. I'm going to read all 22 verses of Lamentations chapter 5, and then we will try to, to dive into its riches together. This is the word of the Lord for for you and for me this morning. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We've become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink, and the wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We're weary. We're given no rest. We've given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There's none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. 
Our skin is as hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate. The young men, their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless unless you've utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. This is God's word. You can be seated. The first step that lament prayers take is a step towards God. In lament, in the scriptures and in your life, you turn to God. That's a decision you have to make, and it's not a given. I mean, because lament is a form of prayer, you might think, well, duh, of course you turn to God. I mean, how could you not turn to God if, if you're praying? But, 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 but don't say that. It's not a given at all that in your sorrow you might turn to him. This first step really matters. It's, it's, it's foundational to everything else. Because when you're suffering, it's easy to live in your head. It's easy just to, to fight with all the strength you've got, whatever that is, simply to, to bring order to your pain, to kind of explain it into submission or, or hack your way forward through, through a jungle tangle of, of the details and the circumstances and the what-ifs. It's not a given that you bring anybody into your sorrow, much less that you would bring God into it. And lament begins with the decision to bring God into it. That's the decision the poet makes in verse 1. It's a prayer. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. And it ends with prayer. One of the things that we've said about this step, I'll say it again now at the conclusion of this series, is that one of the things you need to know, one of the gifts that this genre of material, this lament type of material in the Bible is to you, is that it's a reminder that, that lament, this complaint to God that we're about to spend some time on, is not a lack of faith. It is a kind of expression of faith. In fact, lament, the kind of expression of faith that this kind of complaining he's about to do represents is unique to the believer. It's the believer who knows that his pain involves God, that, that God rules over all, that nothing comes into God's world or to God's people that God doesn't allow. So my sorrow, my pain, my loss came from him. This kind of lament is unique to the one who believes that God's involved and doesn't understand why. And turning to God with that pain, talking to him about it, that's what separates lament from mere frustration or resignation or despair. Because even if you're unsure of his ways and even if you're struggling to trust in his care, you should know turning to him 
talking to him about it, that honors him. It treats him as a factor in what you're dealing with. It treats him as someone who listens, who can do something about it. Israel knew they deserved what they got and still they turn to him here anyway. You can too. Lament always starts here. The bulk of lament though and the bulk of this prayer is step number two. Laments complain to God. Laments take the details of their experience, of a person's experience, and catalog it for God's ear. With one last surge of interest, this poet who's been cataloging his pain for four chapters and is running out of steam, with one last surge of interest, surge of energy, he goes there again. And for the next 12 verses or so, after verse 1, begins to catalog once again the things that have happened to them. Just saying, here it is. This is me. This is my life. For God to listen to and to notice. I want to pull out just a few of the things he complains about so that you can see it. But as I do that, I want you to know, before I even get into it, the model here is for you to be as specific as this poet is. To come to God with the details. That honors him. He wants to see that. He wants to know what you see. Watch how the poet moves group by group, experience by experience, trying to catalog all the things that have gone wrong in Israel's life. He complains first about their shame. This is actually in verse 1. See our disgrace, Lord. Look what's happened to us. And it really hangs over the rest of this poem. It shows up in lots of the other ones. It hangs over the rest of this one. Israel is just disgraced by what's happened to them, partly because they deserve it, but partly because suffering always comes with some shame. Even if suffering is not a result of our misbehavior or some sort of failure in us, I I think we always struggle with the disgrace of our own vulnerability. And suffering shows us that we're not who we think we are. That we're not above depression or crippling anxiety or subpar parenting or whatever else that might get you down. In our suffering, we recognize we're not, we're not supermen, superwomen. We're not different from those we've seen struggle around us. You realize you're vulnerable and needy, and that can be a shameful thing. Israel complains about their shame. Speaking of vulnerability, that's the bulk of their complaint. That's where they go next. Complains to God about their absolute, abject helplessness in the face of the powers that be. From verse 2 to verse 13, it's one example after another of Israel's absolute inability to protect themselves from those who come for them. They're at the mercy of the powerful. Once they had taken their security for granted. They used it for their purposes. But now they see the truth about how defenseless they are. Their inheritance, stolen by foreigners. They themselves, well, verse 3 describes them as fatherless, as widows. In the ancient world, it's the best shorthand category for what it is to to, to be completely vulnerable. There was no social safety net back then. Your family was your social safety net. So you lose your father, you lose your husband, and you're completely defenseless with no one to provide. And that's where Israel is. Their pursuers, verse 5 say, are at their necks. That's a powerful image, isn't it? For vulnerability think about one of those animals attack videos you know when the when the lion has the gazelle or whatever in his jaws it goes completely limp because what else are you going to do 
Like fighting is only going to make it worse. You resist it, and it's just going to make them bite harder. Well, that's where Israel's pursuers are, at their neck. They're just limp. They, they'll, they'll take what they get. They've got no other move. Continues it in the verses that come. They're, they're, they're being sexually abused. They're princes, they're rulers, would-be rulers, being hung up by their hands to be tortured with whatever their conquerors decide they want to do to their bodies. The elders don't get any respect. The young men, their labor is at the disposal of the slavers who rule over them. They're grinding at mills. They're staggering under loads of wood. They don't get a childhood. So at every category of Israel's people, they're vulnerable, defenseless, with nowhere else to go. He's complaining about that. They don't want to be vulnerable. Complains of their hunger. Did you notice that? Verse 6 talks about bread. Verse 9, he talks again about bread. Verse 10, he talks about their skin as hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Their hunger was a huge part of what this experience was for Israel. It was a siege where the army set up around their, their walled city and just waited them out until they starved. But for Israel, hunger was also much more than physical. There was a, a, a kind of metaphorical hunger here too. An emptiness inside, a longing for what they once had, for the satisfaction of knowing God and being near to him. They're hungry. They complain about it. They complain about their joylessness and their mourning, and it makes sense. Did you notice this at the end of the, near the end of the poem? The joy of our hearts has, has ceased. Young men aren't making music anymore. Nobody's dancing anymore. It's all mourning, and of course it is. Because the kind of joy and happiness and levity that they're talking about here, well, that's a product of stability, of security, of not having to look over your shoulder all the time, of not being in the jaws of an oppressor that you can't resist for yourself. That, that way of living, the levity and joyfulness that, that David sings about in the Psalms, that's gone from their experience. Just sadness settled in. And complains of their guilt. They're mourning, but also their guilt. Verse 16, they're done trying to pretend like this is somebody else's fault. Woe to us, he says, for we have sinned. It's not just shame they're dealing with. They're actually guilty. They know it, and they lament about it. And then, underneath it all, complains about one more thing that's fundamental to all the others. Verses 17 and 18 he complains that God's not with them anymore. For this, our heart has become sick, he says. Isn't that a great description of grief? Your heart hurts, aches, steals your appetite. Why is their heart sick? Mount Zion lies desolate, that's why. Mount Zion's a reference to the temple to the center of the holy city where God himself in his presence dwelt with his people. It's what set Israel apart from the other nations around them. It's also what gave them hope, what gave them peace, what gave them a future. God with them as their God, they as his people, knowing the joy of a back and forth relationship where they worship him and he provides everything they need. That's now gone. The temple is empty except for the jackals that prowl around it. So he complains that their relationship is broken. Why do you forsake us for so many days, he asks. 
So, so what he's doing here, and before we move into the, to the next section, just to make sure this is clear, what he's doing here is, is assuming that God cares, wants to know what he sees, what he feels, wants to know where he is in this experience. The fact that this poem has been protected for so many years, handed down so that you and me could read it today, is a sign that God really does care what you think, what you see, and what you feel. He's offering this to you as a model for you to use in your own life to catalog for him the different dimensions of the pain you're experiencing. So he doesn't expect you, in other words, to keep it together. Contentment is a, is, is, is a quality that the Bible celebrates. Contentment is not the same thing as stoicism. Spiritual health does not look like you not being affected by anything. Stoicism is never celebrated, never called for in the scriptures. God wants you where you are, as you are, coming to him. And lament it always involves being honest about whatever it is you're struggling with, whatever you wish were dis- different. So what steps is this prayer laying out for us? What steps have we been tracing this summer? Well, first you've got to turn to God. But when you do, you are invited to complain to him about what's going on in your life that you wish were different and to treat him as if he cares about it. That's step number two. Step number three flows directly out of step number two. Step number three in a biblical lament is to ask boldly of God, to ask him to do something about what's happened to your life. Did you notice this kind of complaint here is not angry, it's not dismissive, it's not a kind of, I'm over this, fist shaking at God that moves on to some other option. That's not the posture at all. This is a desperate complaint. This is someone who's been brought to the end of themselves and they have nowhere else to turn and they're done pretending like they might do better than what they're getting from God from somebody else's hand. They're done with that. They're not evaluating him as a customer in a, uh, in a storefront with lots of different options to choose from. They're their enemies are at their necks. They've gone limp in the jaws of the lion. That's their posture. Defenselessness. So they ask God because they don't have anyone else to ask. We talked about this uh, two or three weeks ago. I've forgotten when. Maybe it was actually more like six weeks ago. The summer just were running together for me. Um, we, were, we were talking about this, this step, uh, uh, what it looks like to jump from your despair and into a request of God and to treat him like he actually cares and, and, and can do something about it. We were using Psalm number 13. The sermon from that psalm is on the website. I remember using this image that I think applies here really well. When you're complaining to God, not from a posture of despair, you might actually have something left in the tank to be angry at him to shake your fist at him, to, to, to judge him for, for letting this happen to you or for not doing anything else about it. But when your despair has taken you all the way to the end, when you've been honest enough about what's happened in your life to not have anything left in the tank to shake your fist at him, then you're ready for lament, for the kind of desperate plea to the only God who can do anything about it. We talked about an image, the difference between, between a beachgoer who's sitting in, in a chair that's serviced by a full-service beach waiter who's feeling neglected and overlooked by his waiter. You know, he said he was coming with that slushie. That was like 10 minutes ago. I've seen him bring those people their slushies 
They asked at least five minutes after I did, and they're happily sipping on that pina colada, and, and here I am sweating with nothing to ease my pain. There's something about that beachgoer's despair that actually could lead to just checking out on that waiter. All right, I'm going to go find another full-service beach access spot. I'm going to ask another waiter who's going to be more responsive to my needs. He's forgotten me. He's forsaken me. I'm going somewhere else. That's one posture. It's not the posture we get from lament. The posture we get from lament is more like the beachgoer who's out in the waves, who's been sucked away by riptide, who's now 100 yards from sea, or from the shore, rather, and still going out and losing energy to fight against the tide that's sucking them out and sees a lifeguard over there on the beach who doesn't seem to see him. Well, that person's going to ask the same question as the, as the one who's frustrated with his waiter. Why have you forsaken me? How long will you leave me here? When will you come back? But that person cries with a desperation that the unhappy customer can't muster. That person's waving their arms and screaming everything they are to get the attention of the only one who can do anything about it. They're not looking for other options. There's one lifeguard. They just want to be seen. The prayer of the person who's reached that kind of despair is not a fist-shaking, I'm done with you kind of prayer, but a you hear me or I die kind of prayer. And that's the kind of prayer that this poet is offering now. The drowning man says... Why do you forsake me? And then praise, come to me. Which is basically what our poet prays. Why do you forget us forever, he's asked. And his, and his prayer is, restore us to yourself, O Lord. That's all we want. Restore us to yourself so that we may be restored. He wants God's presence. He knows that that's the only path to restoration. He's been specific, said you should be too. He's mentioned shame. He's mentioned vulnerability. He's mentioned sadness. He's mentioned guilt. He wants to be delivered from all of those specific problems and more. But his focus now, when he comes down, the rubber meets the road and he's making his prayer, his core focus, which lies beneath all those other things that he wants to to be different, his core focus is on God himself and a prayer that he would be near and dear in his life. Someone said that he prays now to the God whose justice brought this pain into his life because the God of justice is the only God who is. Where else is he going to go? So I wonder, in your suffering, what do you want? What are you asking for? Who is God to what you want? Do you want him? Laments always start with a turn to God. They are real honest with him and go specifically as possible through what it is that they're facing. Laments complain and laments don't just stop at complaining. They move into a desperate, all or nothing, I live because of you or I die kind of prayer to God. Bold asking. And then laments end with a choice that, that you've got in front of you today. You can choose, as these biblical authors did, to, to trust God. Laments move, and the Bible's laments, move to trust in God. That's the final step in this powerful genre. 
Now, I'm going to admit right here, uh, this step of trusting God, it's real common throughout the kind of laments we've been looking at. It's not the main point of lamentations. It's actually not very, very prominent here. Even in the, in the poem we just read, there's not a lot of hope in this book. This book is mostly about what it feels like to lose everything. That's its role to play in the bigger sweep of what the Bible says. And we want to let it speak for itself. In fact, the, the fact that, that trust is not heavy emphasized here, that it's mostly just, just open-ended complaint and then these questions that go unanswered at the end of the book. The fact that it, that it, that it ends unresolved like this with open questions about what God would do, verse 22. That's actually a gift that God has given us. It's what makes it immediately useful to all present sufferers. Somebody called this book a perpetual lament. I like that. I think that's true. It stands unresolved. And that's one of the things that makes it immediately useful to you. If your pain is unresolved, you haven't seen a breakthrough yet, you can take up this book and find your own experience represented with words you can use today without feeling like you've got to get to the happy ending in order to, to use the Bible. That's a, that's a beautiful gift and one that you should use to the fullest. And because that's what this book does, it does end with a, a bleak ending that I think is on purpose and that we need to see. But, but I, don't want, I don't want you to miss a glimmer of trust that is still here, that's built in. It's small, but it's powerful. It's a Trojan horse that carries in an army with the power to, to, to set everything right. And it's in verse 19. Their heart is sick over what's happened to their city. It's sick, especially over Mount Zion, God's temple, his presence, desolate and empty except for the jackals. But though, though his temple may be empty, his throne is not. You, O oh Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. You see that, friends? His temple is empty. His throne is filled. And as long as God sits on the throne, as long as he reigns, there is the possibility of a new word, of a new day, of a twist to this awful story that makes all things right again. As long as God sits on the throne, there remains the possibility of an answer to this prayer of one who hears and has the power to respond. And it's that conviction, that choice to trust he reigns still that fuels their prayer. They know that that lifeguard is still on the beach and he hadn't hit the water yet. And as far as I know, I'm still a goner. But as long as he's there, I'm gonna fight for his attention. I'm gonna wave my arms with all the energy I've got. I'll scream as loud as I possibly can and I'll wait for him. I'll wait for him. And that's what, that's what Lamentations 5 ends with. And where I wanna end, not just this, not just this poem, but, but, but the whole series. If you'll permit me to move past the unresolved waiting of this poem and out of the perspective that Lamentations gives us that I hope we've done justice to together over the last five weeks, and into the wider context of the Bible that Lamentations belongs in. 
So, so hear me saying this. Yes, Lamentations ends unresolved and that's for you. That's on purpose. You and your pain may not have resolution yet. And the kind of trust that Lamentations is meant to build doesn't depend on a happy ending, not yet. It looks ahead to one, but doesn't need to experience one yet. Yes to all of that. That's Lamentations. But I think we're doing a disservice to the God who does listen and does answer to not consider how the Bible speaks into the questions asked by this book. I want to finish there. The darkness of this book prepares us for the light of many other books. And, and what I want to po- point you to especially here with the last few minutes, something that was a real breakthrough for me in studying this book and following the lead of others who, 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 who showed this to me, I wouldn't have seen it on my own, is just how well this book's questions the experience behind Israel's suffering, the, the open-endedness of this final plea for God to hear us, to remember us, unless you finally rejected us. How well that plea matches up with one of the most powerful, one of the clearest, one of the most important and beautiful prophecies that God makes for what he would do through Jesus. It's a prophecy that belongs to this exact same context that Lamentations does. It's by the prophet Isaiah who looked ahead to the time that Lamentations is looking back to, to the coming judgment of Israel for their sins against God. But then also looked ahead, there's a a second section of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40 to chapter 55, looks ahead to the backside of the suffering that the first part of the book had predicted. To the time when Israel would be in exile, when their people would be scattered to the winds, when no one knew whether God was done with them or not. It looks ahead to those people, the people that Lamentations speaks for and speaks to them. I want to encourage you to spend some time this week, if you're looking for some, something to read in the scriptures, something that would go well with what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings the last month. I would encourage you to read Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah chapter 55 and to do it with lamentations in your backdrop. And I'm going to show you why. This section of the book looks ahead to when Israel is scattered to the winds, to when Israel is saying and feeling everything that lamentations has just cataloged for us, and it speaks to them. I want to show you what God says to these people and to you. Do you remember the way that Lamentations began? If you were here with us back at the beginning of this month when we first did a kind of overview of the, of the book, back in Lamentations chapter 1, the main theme, uh, one of the main themes of that chapter came up several times was the lack of a comforter. The poet looking over Jerusalem and its desolation said, verse 9 of chapter 1, she has no comforter. Then Jerusalem speaks for herself. And she says in verse 16, a comforter is far from me. The poet then speaks back over her in verse 17. There is none to comfort her. And then she speaks for herself again in verse 20. There is no one to comfort me. She cried out without comfort in this book for somebody to see. For the Lord to see. And he did. Do you need comfort this morning? Listen to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That part of your life is over. 
A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground will become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God speaks comfort to his comfortless people. Do you remember the cry that this fifth poem begins with? Lord, remember us. Look, see us. Don't leave us where we are. Remember, she had prayed. Do you feel alone this morning? Listen to Isaiah chapter 49, verse 14. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Does that sound familiar? That's Lamentations 5. She did say that. Verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, says the Lord. Do you remember her disgrace? Chapter 5 began with that. Look on us, see our disgrace. Do you remember the category in chapter 1 and in chapter 5 of Lamentations that summarized Israel's vulnerability? Her widowhood. She's like a widow now. God saw her. God heard her cry. Do you feel ashamed and exposed this morning? Listen to Isaiah chapter 54, verses 4 to 8. Fear not says the Lord, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. It's the same words, friends. For you will forget the shame of your youth. The reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. That's the Lamentations moment. But with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. That's the Lamentations moment. Where are you? Do not forsake us forever. But, God says, with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Do you remember her hunger? How often her hunger was was used as a kind of summary of what her life was like? She's empty. She's got no sustenance. She's abject and helpless. Are you empty this morning? Listen to Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, says the Lord. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. We know you don't have anything. He knows you're helpless and vulnerable. He knows you're hungry. Why do you spend your money, he says, for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. That promise from Isaiah 55 to Israel and her hunger. Do you remember 
how she cried out that her joy had departed, that the dancing had been turned in the morning, that there was no happiness, no music played by the young men. You remember that? Listen to Isaiah 55 verse 12. You, the Lord says, shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you will break forth into singing. The young men may have set aside their instruments for now, not forever. One day the mountains will even join you and sing. The trees of the field will clap their hands and instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it'll make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Are you grieving this morning? That one's for you. And do you remember in Lamentations 5, the cry for restoration for the presence of the Lord restored to his people. One of the first promises in Isaiah comes in Isaiah 7. It's the promise that we quote a lot at Christmas. Unto you a child will be born, a son. You will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And this Emmanuel, this God with us that Isaiah promises, he wouldn't take up shop in the temple again. God's presence with us now would not look like the splendor of David or Solomon's day. It wouldn't look like anyone was expecting it to look. God with us, the promise of Isaiah, would take an unimaginable form that perfectly accounts for our sorrow, our affliction, and the unshakable guilt that our sins have brought on each one of us what it would look like for God to be with us for the promise of restoration to be fulfilled is described in Isaiah 53. This God with us, well, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, the dry ground of lamentations. He had no form or majesty we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. This wasn't anybody's idea of a king he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows just like the poet of lamentations 3 and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not why would God come to us like this verse 4 surely he has borne our griefs He's carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but it wasn't his sins that he suffered for. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. In this chapter and in the reality of Jesus, the prayer that God would restore his people to himself is answered. God did come. And he came not just to set up shop in the temple, as I've mentioned, but to do something far more than any other, any other priest at the glory days of that temple was ever able to do. To offer for our sins, the sins that lamentations confess, to offer for our sins a sacrifice that's so perfect, so complete, so without blemish that it can cover anybody who will ever trust in him. 
to make it possible to be restored to God because the thing that broke our relationship with him has been removed. The gap has been bridged. The guilt has been atoned for perfectly. That offer stretches across the years to you this morning, friend. No matter what you've done, even if you're living in the rubble of a life you destroyed, no matter what you've done, God can be with you through Jesus and he can restore you in a way that you can't even imagine. And what does this mean for how we process our pain? It doesn't mean that we use the gospel and the promise of Jesus' death and resurrection as a kind of lid to to put back over the can of suffering you might have gotten the courage to open up. It doesn't mean that you shove it all back down inside and cap it over with this promise that God has answered us and come as he said he would. It doesn't mean that. If we've learned anything from this series, I hope what we've learned is is that trust in God A daily active trust in God does not depend on a happy ending. It doesn't depend on on resolution that you've experienced yet. Hope is not that kind of species. It's not endangered. It doesn't cling to life in the most hospitable of, of ecosystems. It's not like that. It's resilient. So by all means, be honest. But you should also know that the kind of trust that lament models is fueled by memory. And that's never more important than in times where God's presence and care seem distant. As Christians living now, on this side of Jesus, the prophecies that Isaiah made, the promise of God being with us, what we've seen in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, those are our memories now. That is how God treats us. And it's right to lament by all means. But when we lament, it's only right to remember the God who remembers us and to wait for Him with hope. Lament is what you need now with God's answer in your memory bank and God's promise as your horizon to be with Him in the in-between. Lament, in fact, rather than rather than, the, than being a, uh, something that separates us from him, is how we, we bring him into and fuel our sorrowful longing for the day that he's promised us. I want to pray together after I read the, the best, clearest, most beautiful description of that day, which I hope after five weeks in Lamentations is going to sound familiar. I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 21, and then I'm going to pray. Think about these words, these phrases, these, these sufferings and these prayers that have come out of Lamentations, and hear this from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Jerusalem is the focus of Lamentations, a desolate wasteland. Here comes the new one. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, Lamentations had prayed. He will. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. 
and God himself will be with them as their God. And with God with you, what happens? Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, the throne affirmed in Lamentations chapter 5, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Father, we look to that day and ask that you would come quickly. And we look to that day knowing that we won't have the faith to hold on for it unless you give it to us and uphold it for us. So we ask you to hold on to us as we hold on to faith. We ask that you would help us to be honest with you and with each other. And that our honesty would fuel our hope. Would give us a deep and unmistakable sense of why we need what you've promised us. And why nothing else will do. We pray that through lament you would deepen our hope, not threaten it. And that you'd help us to help one another to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.